Hello, everybody. Welcome to your monthly Ask an Attorney webinar. I am Steve Fisher. Of the, I am the uh, Training Operations Manager for the USCCA, and I've been asked here to join Tom Green, Attorney Tom Grieve here, who is the head of the largest <laughs> criminal defense firm here in Wisconsin. Well, Tom, we've got a bunch of questions already on board, so let's get started. How's that sound? Let's get to it. All right, so the first one, if I wanted to avoid using my firearm in self-defense, uh, would a good idea be to carry a set of handcuffs to apprehend a criminal who may be trying to attack you? No. Next question. <laughs> no. I mean, that's, that's, that, that's, that's not a good idea for multiple different reasons. And, you know, uh, a lot of them, aside from legal, are just simply kind of tactical, for lack of a better way of putting it. And, you know, um, from my end, and being on the training end, I know you've got way more insights on this than I do, Steve, but from my end... Yeah, somebody's about to, uh, somebody is in the process of attacking me, right? And they're presenting a deadly threat. So I'm going to John Wick style disarm them and then handcuff them and subdue them. Uh, that, that, seems, um, that seems a bit beyond the reach of, uh, of ordinary training, to say the least. It, yeah. it seems like an extraordinarily dangerous scenario at a minimum. We teach people to get away, right. you know? And your firearm is a tool to help you to get away. Not to go out there and, and apprehend somebody. I mean, then you're going to the fight. And that's when you can start getting in trouble. You know, and if I were to do that, I know I would have to be calling my friend Tom here to get me out of that trouble. And to that point as well, you know, if you've got the skills and the training, somehow, some way, let's just give them to you and say that you've got it. You've got the skills and the training in order to actually subdue, disarm, apprehend, and handcuff someone. I would bet you probably also have the skills and training to probably escape and get out of that situation, which maybe is appropriate for you under those circumstances, maybe it isn't, but it's certainly a consideration because keep in mind, in some states, whether or not you had the option to retreat, that maybe something that's factored into whatever kind of court analysis could be coming out of it if you're gonna be charged with some sort of offense. And keep in mind, if you run around and start handcuffing people, uh, that's called false imprisonment. And here in Wisconsin, that's a felony. All right, so I understand, I think the intent of the question is, well, I don't want to be charged with a felony, so how do I get out of doing that? And the answer is usually not by committing another felony. And yes, there are citizen arrest statutes and so forth, but I have seen people, uh, one particular case, real life case comes to mind, of a store security guy who um, apprehended somebody and I think duct taped his, his hands together, as I recall. And he got charged with a felony for it. And part of his, his explanation was, well, if he, got, if he started resisting, if he got violent, I didn't want to have to become violent back, not only for his protection and safety and mine as well, but also for the fact that I didn't want to get into trouble. So he just got in trouble for something different. So I don't think you're necessarily saving yourself a lot of headaches there. Yeah. If you're a law enforcement officer in an off-duty situation, I mean, sure, yeah, you have that training. You know, you have that almost a, a duty and obligation to be able to take care of those types of situations. But that's different than what it would be for me, a, a standard civilian. Right. You know, so I mean, get away from the situation as quickly as you possibly can. Don't go to it, you know. Right. right. What else question. do we have? All right. Uh, we're looking at if I wanted to use, if I wanted to avoid using my firearm in self-defense, would a good idea be to carry a set of handcuffs? We just read that, so that's highlighted. We need to unhighlight that. <laughs> okay. Should you try and be stealthy that you have a gun and surprise the attacker when they aren't looking? Uh, I think that at the end of the day, again, people are classically starting to overthink questions here. So if you have something where somebody's attacking with deadly force and you're in a position where you can respond with deadly force under the law, and keep in mind, all those laws vary with place and time, state to state. Have you, have you 
as you've heard me say before, check your local listings, uscca.com forward slash laws, laws with an S at the end, to check out your local listings on how those deadly force laws may apply in your state or a state that you're traveling to. Um, but I think if you're trying to surprise somebody, it sounds more like you're attacking them to me. Um, so, and I don't, I'm not taking this question to really kind of get at the, the nuances and specifics and the differences between open carry and concealed carry. I don't think that that's whoever, whoever asked this question, I don't think that's what they're getting to. But um, at the end of the day, you need to be responding. If you cannot escape, if you cannot uh, get out of the way and so forth, if that's appropriate and available under the circumstances, I'd be worried about using any kind of language uh, to suggest that you are attacking someone else. That's, that's uh, as, a, as a criminal defense attorney, that's, that's scary. Yeah, I'm guessing that he's visualizing a, a situation where maybe he's in a, a public venue, obviously, let's just say a movie theater. I actually saw a, uh, a video, a training video, to help people to, under, you know, concealed carry practitioners to how they can um, possibly stop that shooting from happening, right? And so they kind of use some self stealth inside of that training video, too. So if you have somebody that's um, shooting people, innocent people, randomly, and you have an opportunity to, you know, flank them and get into a position to stop that shooting, I, my personal advice is going to be, you know, that's a situation where I think you got to make a call yourself. Me, personally, I probably would try to take that guy out. You know, but sure. I'm not hunting them. I just see an opportunity that presented itself to stop that shooting from happening. And that's a great point because I took that question to mean that somehow I'm being attacked or I'm about to be attacked and instead I'm going to basically counter ambush. But yeah, if we take this to a mass shooting scenario or something like that, um, then if you decide to jump into that shark tank, and if you decide to use lethal force, keeping in mind all the implications that that have, which includes risking your own life, but also indirectly, um, but in a very serious way, the life of your family, your coworkers, your, your children, all those sorts of people are going to be profoundly altered and changed, no matter what you do, really, but particularly if you decide to engage, uh, even if you come out victorious, which is not something that always happens in real life. Right. I got a question. Um, Max, you here? Hi, Max. Is it, are these questions, the names on here, so all of these that we're reading right now, are they coming from Herb? Nope, these uh, questions are coming from the survey that was sent out earlier this week. I gotcha, because it says name and then questions. I wanted to give credit where credit was due for the good <laughs> questions. Um, Tom, the next one is how long can the police hold me after a shooting? So it's really going to vary from state to state. Here's the gist to it, is without making a decision about whether or not you're going to be uh, formally um, charged, so to speak, uh, they typically have maybe 48 hours to hold you for investigation, to, to hold you, to, to kind of cool things off. Oftentimes they're going to be doing some subpoenas to get their hands on evidence. Sometimes that may include going into your cell phone, depending upon what kind of evidence were probable cause and what the courts, uh, you know, what the direction of the investigation. Um, so they can hold you for a, a usually a period of time, well, 48 hours, you know, here in Wisconsin. And then, but that doesn't mean you then automatically get out. Then there's a separate time window that begins that then takes uh, a certain amount of time before maybe you're entitled to some sort of probable cause or bail determination. Again, not every state may allow you to have bail. Here in Wisconsin, mandatory bail, uh, but not every state's going to have that. So one set of timelines begins for the police investigation, and then at the end of that, they have to make some determination where basically they're cutting you loose, and it doesn't mean that you're, everything's done. They can still circle back an hour, a day, a week, a month, a year later and reinitiate things. But they have a certain period of time, let's call it 48 hours or thereabouts usually in most states in my experience. And then you have a follow-up amount of time for bail and something like that. So very realistically, 
you could be in jail conceivably without bail or something like that in, in certain states for days. So if they wanted to hold you that long. If they wanted to hold you and if, if that's the process and if that's the flow of things. So um, it's, it's not a, a cut and dry scenario. There's a lot of discretion. There's lots of, of situations and circumstances that can play into this. Another question came up uh, out of this particular topic. It says, how does, how does bail work? Sure. So again, it's going to vary from state to state. All right. So um, some states, you, you may not be entitled to any kind of bail. So it could be a body only. In other words, it doesn't matter how much money, how much cash you or, or Bitcoin or whatever you have <laughs> sitting around. Um, uh, you're not getting out, right? So that's, that's one scenario. Um, and keep in mind, we're talking about states, but there's also the federal level too. So most of the time, these kind of homicides, these kind of cases are going to be held at the state rather than federal level. But I don't want to ignore the fact that there's also the federal system as well. Um, so you got the body only situations. Then you've got cash bail. Cash bail is what we think of when we think of bail. In other words, you are not leaving the jail, the courthouse, there, wherever it is that you are, typically the jail, until X amount of dollars are posted. Now, in some states, you have bail bondsmen. We do not have that here in Wisconsin. But in some states, you have bail bondsmen. So maybe uh, you, only, you can hire or contract with a third party to post some or all that bail on your behalf. In other states, I know that uh, there are some scenarios where you only have to post a certain percentage of the bail. Um, again, not the case here in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, if the judge says $10,000 bail or $100,000 bail or $1 million bail, until the sheriff's department has the cash, the credit, the whatever it is that they accept, pro tip, I've never seen them accept the check, um, <laughs> unless you've got the cash or, or the credit in order to punch it up to that limit, you aren't leaving the courthouse. The third way is something called the signature bond, a personal cognizance bond. Uh, this varies from place to place. Uh, but the gist to it is that you are signing some sort of contract, a surety of, let's imagine the judge says a $10,000 signature bond. Well, that doesn't mean you have to post one nickel necessarily. But basically, you're going to be entering into a contract with that jurisdiction, maybe that county and state, whatever it might be, whereby you are agreeing to follow the terms and conditions on that contract. So a very common set of uh, bail conditions for you know, a self-defense firearm case might be um, that you have you commit no new law violations, make all future court dates, notify the court within 48 hours of any change of address, that you not possess any firearms or any other dangerous weapons, and that you have no contact with, if it happened in a particular business or establishment, you have no contact with the employees uh, or that establishment itself. Uh, you have no contact with, if they're charging you with a crime, then they're going to say that the person you shot is a victim. Right? And there's, there's capital V victim is lower V victim. We don't know which one we're talking about here. In other words, are they a bad guy victim versus a good guy victim, so to speak? Um, but uh, they're probably going to say you're not to have any contact with that individual if they're still alive or maybe other, any other witnesses involved in the case. Depending upon what the other allegations might be, you may have drug testing, absolute sobriety. You, you may have all sorts of other things um, in play. There's also house rest options. <laughs> We could spend an hour t just talking about bail. Just be aware that it can be cash, it may be nothing, it could also be a contract. If you are, uh, if, if the court, pardon, if the court determines that you violated that contract, then the county or the state may be able to sue you for that $10,000. So if you signed a $10,000 signature bond, you didn't have to post a nickel to get out, but if you are said to have violated it, then maybe the county corporation office or whoever are the attorneys that represent the county can come after you for $10,000 garnish it off wages, do tax intercepts, you name it, in addition to charging you with more crimes. 
That was a four-word question. I know. And, but here's the thing. I, I knew that to, was coming. But the, the cool thing about it is that's how valuable these sessions are with Tom because I would have never known that there was that much that goes into, you know, how does bail work? Because yeah. when you said you can't write a check, I, I kind of would have tried to write a check and I would have said, here, here here's the bail. Nope. Let me out of jail. Nope. And it's not that simple. So nope. that's why it's so critical that you have an attorney like Tom to be able to help you through these situations if you ever find yourself in one of them. And they all vary. And even within states, they can vary. The peculiarities can vary from county to county and within counties over time. Let's get to the next question. So it says, if I am a good guy with a gun, how can I be secure in knowing that I will not be prosecuted for defending myself or someone else? You can't. I mean, simple, point blank. There, there is nothing that you can do to know that you cannot be prosecuted. Because at the end of the day, as I always tell my clients, um, we don't know what the police know. And that seems a little counterintuitive, but so let's just take a moment to unpack that. You were there, right? Hopefully you know what's going on. And yes, there's lots of uh, very strong psychological factors that have weighed on you as far as tunnel vision and auditory exclusion and all this other kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you were there. And even if we give you perfect knowledge and say that you were the tape recorder that, that, that got everything down, you wrote everything down, we've talked about it all, what you don't know is what the other witnesses may have said and what, I assure you, they did say to police. And if there's 10 witnesses, you've got 10 different versions of what else is out there. And law enforcement's going to try to unpack all that themselves, and they're going to try to make sense out of it. But when you're sitting in my office or another person's office, God forbid, and you're trying to figure out what's going on, I always tell my clients, we don't know what the police know. And uh, usually other people's versions are not going to be as good or as helpful. And oftentimes they're contradictory, sometimes a little bit, sometimes a lot but we don't know what they know. And at the end of the day, as a result of that, there's no guarantee anybody can give you that someone else didn't see or say or hear the wrong thing and then make it even more wrong when they reported it to law enforcement. So at the end of the day, there's no guarantee any, that I can make or anyone else can make that you will never be charged for acting faithfully and to discharge all your training correctly. There, there is no guarantee, just like there is no guarantee in life. At the end of the day, you can take charge with your training and education, which is presumably, hopefully, why you're here, to stack those odds in your favor. And that's why everything's stopped by the back end of the legal protection to really tie things off, which is really just kind of the completion, if you will, or, or it's another phase or stage, to my mind, in the education and the training. It's the manifestation of that all coming together. Uh, of the, where the rubber hits the road here, so to speak. So, uh, but there, there's nothing I can say that's, that's going to give you the, you know, uh, the imprimatur of you're good to go. I can't do it. Yeah, there's no way to rubber stamp it. You're, you're guilty or you're innocent. You have to hope that everything that you did do or not do is going to be within the guidelines of the law. And then you got to have somebody, again, like Tom, to help you th to, to wade through that jungle after it. You get yourself in the middle of it. Right. Does type of ammunition chosen for EDC increase or decrease risk of added legal liability resulting from use in a deadly force encounter? So it's an ammunition question. Does type of ammunition chosen in EDC increase or decrease the risk of added legal liability? Uh, to a degree, I would say yes. <coughs> and, and here's what I mean by that. If you're using, um, not to pick on a brand that, that I actually like, but if you're using high-powered buffalo bore, uh, and you're using you know, deep penetrating shots that are gonna be passing through a bunch of walls and a bunch of this and a bunch of that. And don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-penetration at all when it comes to, uh, when it comes to, uh, to firearms and self-defense weapons. 
But since this is where the question goes, yeah, if a lot more people are potentially going to be injured, does that increase your liability? When I hear liability, I think, I think two things. Number one, criminal liability. Are you going to be arrested, charged, and can you go to jail? Number two, civil liability. Can someone else sue me? And the answer to that question is always yes. Always yes. What, what happens next and can you fight off the lawsuit and make them go away? Maybe even you get some money out of it. That's a separate question, right? Uh, but yeah, you are increasing your liability. Likewise, if you have the um, kill, kill, kill them all around or something like that, you know, it's right on the side of the box and so forth. In my experience, most prosecutors are not gun people. I think that a lot of that's going to vary, obviously, if you're in a more rural setting versus a more urban setting, a lot of the politics that, that get bundled into that. Um, but a lot of times they're not going to have the sophistication to understand that this particular type of ammunition is good for this and this particular type of ammunition is good for that. I have been in court when I have heard all uh, full metal jacket rounds characterized as military-grade ammunition that no civilian should have access to. Not my client, by the way. I just was sitting there waiting for my case to be called and a judge characterized some this other attorney. handgun client. ammo they were talking about? Handgun ammo, yeah. <laughs> Um, is full metal jacket, I think, is, as I kind of figured out, is 9mm, just full, full metal jacket. Um, different judge, different, different day, I'm sitting in court waiting for another one of my cases to be called, and that judge said, you know, these are just cop killer rounds. Th these, these are hollow point ammunitions. No civilian should have access to hollow point. Great, so you can't have anything that expands, and you can't have anything that doesn't expand, so basically they're saying you can't have anything. And that's where at a certain point, you need to make the right calls, but there's kind of that mainstream of like, well, let's not get too, let's not get too far out there on a limb either way. And that's also where fundamentally you having a strong criminal defense attorney who can be there among other things to educate the court and to be able to stand up for you and to push back in those moments, which includes having the appropriate Second Amendment and, and hands-on firearm knowledge can make a huge difference in the outcome of your case. In neither one of those cases, again, not my cases, not any of the cases for the attorneys at my firm. Uh, in both of those cases, uh, those are attorneys who I don't think knew a nine millimeter from a 45, could probably even describe the difference between a rifle versus a handgun versus a shotgun. And the, the, the judge statements went utterly unchecked. Yeah, I think that um, we have the opportunity to be able to calm the waters a little bit simply by the way we present ourselves after an event like that would have happened, right? So whether or not I used uh, FMJs or JHPs, uh, the way I um, interact with law enforcement in their, in their investigations and when the, uh, the prosecutors come and talk to me and stuff like that, if I come out and if I'm aggressive and defensive by nature, I said they're, they're going to dig a little bit deeper and look at things like, oh, look at, they took the, like you called it, cop killer rounds, you know, those types of things, and they'll use that uh, against me because they're meeting, they're, they're playing into the role that I'm. Um, letting them to believe that I'm playing as an, an aggressive defender, right? So obviously they had, he had bad intentions. So choosing your ammunition, um, it, it, choosing to carry a gun is increasing your liability when it comes to situations like this. So the ammunition obviously adds to it. My, right. my, my advice to my students and our instructors is basically to help people understand to stay calm, you know, and let the attorney do the talking for you, but present yourself in a non-aggressive way. And I know that a lot of people say, you know, well, the safe thing is to carry whatever the police carry in your particular jurisdiction. And I'm not against that. But at the same time, I mean, 
if we just model everything that we do in life based on what law enforcement does, we're all driving Crown Victorias, we're all driving, you know, or, or Ford, whatever it is that they're driving these days, or Chargers or whatever. So I'm not, I'm not married to the idea that you have to carry what your local law enforcement carries, but at the same time, I'm not saying it's a bad idea by any stretch because yeah. it, it at least gives you a snappy comeback if the prosecutor or judge tries to go right. down that road. Right. Next question from Jack. Is there such a thing as too much, um, in parentheses, big gun, and too many rounds fired? Well, for rounds fired, let's take this in reverse, right? We're shooting to stop the threat, period. Any rounds sent downrange after the threat's been stopped is probably going to be too many rounds, all right? Fair statement? Yeah. All right. As for too big a round, well, you know, now we're going to get into, into debate land, right? It needs to be big enough to stop the threat, um, small enough that we can handle it, and presumably the larger the rounds, the, less, the lower the ammunition counts that we're carrying, not to mention the heavier the weapon, and oftentimes, of course, the larger the weapon is too, to keep it controllable. So not to be that guy, uh, although I will say for the record, I'm a big 10 millimeter uh, enthusiast, uh, but I think that you obviously need to be able to handle your firearm, you need to be able to shoot it uh, proficiently, accurately, reliably, no limp wristing, things like that if it's a semi-automatic, uh, and you need to make sure that's appropriate to your surroundings. You know, up here in Winter in Wisconsin, where we're, laying, we're, we're wearing 12 layers, unless you're at a Packer game, then maybe you've got like a layer of paint or something. <laughs> but, but otherwise, if you're wearing 12 layers of, of jackets, you know, carrying the exact same ammo as you would for summer, there's some people who say that's a bad idea, and we, we need to reassess our penetration. Um, but kind of setting those issues for aside, I think whatever works for you, that does the appropriate amount uh, and relative to your situation, relative to your surroundings, to protect yourself and stop the threat. Yeah, I got nothing to add. Great answer. <laughs> Merle asked a question. With regard to the question of being in jail for an extended time pre-charges, what can one do to ensure that personal medications are continued <laughs> during pre-charge incarceration? That's actually a really good question, um, and I don't think it's one I've, I've ever been asked here at the USCCA before. Um, so you're in jail, something's happened, right? Or, or God forbid, but more likely, someone you know is in jail for a DUI or whatever. But at any rate, someone's in jail, they have medications. So generally speaking, jails have some sort of nurse or physician that you can make a, an inmate request to get on a list and see. Uh, most jails, in my experience, and by that it's code for virtually all, don't let you bring in outside medication. Um, and if they do, it's under extraordinarily limited circumstances. Um, I hate to say it, but in my experience, good luck. Mm -hmm. I mean, good luck. And, and there's people, obviously, who are on extremely important uh, blood pressure medication, heart medication, I mean, you name it. Um, uh, psychotropics, uh, you know, something to keep you. Uh, there, there was a client back in our lifetime now who, um, if he was not on his um, antipsychotics medication, he would, he would go off the deep end. I mean, talking to demons and making threats and, you know, uh, he, the jail's not giving him his medications, which is kind of unfortunately standard operating procedure all too often. Um, and again, a lot of this varies from county to county where you are. And guys, keep in mind, if you check out their website, their website's gonna make it probably sound like, oh, this is really simple, this is what you do. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be dismissive of websites, but my experience, 
Websites and reality are two often radically different things as far as here's what we say we do, here's our mission statement and our public facing side versus here's how things actually work. Um, but uh, yeah, I had to create a paper trail uh, basically to, to raise all the alarm bells at jail of look, this is gonna be squarely on you guys if and when something goes wrong. So there's something that maybe your criminal defense attorney might be able to do to raise alarm bells, but this isn't the movies where I walk into the sheriff's department or the jail or whatever with my brown uh, you know, briefcase and my styrofoam cup of coffee and slam it down on the table and tell everybody to scram and flip your medications. That's how I get tased and I'm sharing the cell next to you. All right? <laughs> it doesn't work like that at all. So I hate to say it, you're probably in for a bumpy ride. I say that with full knowledge that maybe you're asking this question, Merrill, because you require life-saving, life-sustaining medication. In my experience, you're still gonna be in for a bumpy ride, and, and I'm, I'm very sorry to say that, um, but that's what it is. Yeah. So the next question, do I have a duty to report a crime? There's more to this. If I have used a firearm in self-defense, do I have any duty or obligation to stay and wait for police? And then he finished up by asking, or could I just leave the scene? Well, I, th I think we should take this in reverse order, right? So can I, can I just leave the scene? Well, is the scene safe? Like, let's start there. Are you safe at the scene, or are you safer away from the scene? Because if you're in some sort of mob environment, something like that, then probably getting off the scene is going to be better. Getting off that X, so to speak. Uh, is going to be better. And that's not to say that you're fleeing the scene or anything like that. It's just you're removing yourself for personal safety reasons. Fair we, enough? Yeah. Well, we had a member who was in a situation late at night in a, um, an empty parking lot. And when he had dispatched of the, uh, the attackers, he went someplace where he felt safer. So he wasn't in a mob. Right. He was by himself. So he felt exposed. And even though the threat at that time was gone, or was no longer a threat, still removed himself um, to get someplace where he felt a little bit safer. Right. And then he made and then he called. a call. Right, yeah. yeah. So there's something that you've probably heard of before, but maybe you haven't. It's called winning the race to 911, all right? And that's this idea of whoever is the first to reach out to law enforcement and make contact with law enforcement can often control the narrative, or at least the initial narrative, uh, because most good guys, in my experience, make the all-too-wrong assumption that the bad guy, when caught, is gonna be the Perry Mason bad guy, and they're gonna own up to, yep, I did it, I was the bad guy. Not true. In real life, my experience is they're gonna say that you shot them, you were trying to rob them, all right? So there, there is, can definitely be a strong value of winning the race to 911 to make sure that your narrative is the initial narrative set forth. And I'm not saying it's gonna win, it's probably gonna be a competing narrative if they ever find this guy or his cohorts or anything like that. But just understand that there is this value, there is this race, whether you know it or not. And a bad guy, look, by the time a bad guy is doing armed robbery and they're putting someone else's lives in danger, they don't just wake up a good guy and then go and do that, right? This side of meth or PCP, no one really does that in my experience, okay? That's a long, dark road that got them there. Um, and along that path, they've probably become reasonably educated as far as how to, what to say to the police to maximize their odds at a good outcome. Um, and that typically means that they're lying. So 
winning that race to 9-1-1 to get some of your narrative out there to hopefully get the ball rolling in the right direction um, may save you a lot of pain. As far as do you have a duty to call 911? I'm I'm unaware of any law out there that says that uh, failure to report. Um, there might be failure reports in different states. Uh, I think it would probably be a very bad idea to not report for among the reasons. One of the ones that we just we just touched on it. There could be a failure to report law that's out there. If you had to if you had to fire your gun. Probably someone heard that. At least there's there's a decent chance, unless you live in the extreme countryside, in which, great for you. <laughs> um, but aside from that, I mean, someone's probably going to hear it. Odds, there's a there's a good chance someone's going to call the police, and someone's going to come looking for you with all of our traffic cameras and everything else that's out there. All our members are law-abiding citizens. We're well-intentioned law-abiding citizens. I'm going to guess that everybody that we have as members, they're going to report that crime because that's you exist to make sure that you take care of. Uh, the problems that you see, you know, in the right way. Right, and police will definitely treat you, in my experience, very differently if you uh, if you don't call in, um, because of course that's what good guys do: is they call in and they wait at the scene or some other place. Um, that's that's what good guys do. So that's the narrative again that you're going to be fighting. That's the ideal. That's the standard that you're going to be measured by, for better or worse. Next question from Michael Tom. So I was reading this uh, while you were answering the last one, I almost started chuckling because, not because the, the situation is funny, but because I know somebody that was in this situation. So now that I've built up the, uh, the question, what should you do if you're stopped at a red light and someone pulls a gun out and points it at you while you're in your car and you have a carry permit? Sure. So I actually know somebody that this happened to not that long ago. I had this case, or I, not, not your case right. that you're referencing, but I, I had a case that was identical to this. Um, the easiest answer, if possible and if safe, is drive away. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the easiest answer I can give you. may not be the satisfying answer as opposed to going you know, Clint Eastwood on them, but <laughs> it, it is the easiest answer. And if you fail to do that answer and if you decide maybe appropriately under the circumstances that that's not an option, maybe you're blocked in by traffic, maybe you have to pull into traffic or drive into a train or something, right? Um, it's not always an option, let's face it. But everybody's going to say, why didn't you do that? And that's, that's going to be something that you're going to have to answer. And it's something that I assure you, you are going to spend countless hours thinking about as you, be, as you are being in, probably inevitably judged by law enforcement for that. So um, that, my initial suggestion is drive away and call the police. Yeah. Well, my friend was blocked in at a very busy intersection. Right. So the person that approached him um, made his request for some money and he did this type of a thing. He pulled it out and he had it in the old, uh, he had it in a position inside of a, 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 a spring type of a jacket and he showed it to him. So my friend couldn't go forward backward. He had no option other than to, to stay there and he, his solution to the problem was is that he just reached forward of his seat and unholstered his weapon and he said mine's bigger than yours. Now there's a little bit of faux comedy in this I guess because <laughs> we're trying to present a, a serious talk here for everybody right. but that was enough to have that person choose to go someplace else. Now my buddy did a really smart thing after that. While he was still at that intersection he pulled out his phone and he took a picture and he 
called 911, and he ended up getting that person um, arrested. Well, his actions helped uh, that person get arrested. So, right. yeah, I mean, was that the right thing to do? It worked out. It worked out. It worked out. It worked and there's out. lots of different ways we can play that scenario, you know. If you're hemmed in and if somebody, you know, is, is off on the passenger side in another vehicle, um, and you're the only person in your car, does that mean you, and you're, you're blocked in, in traffic, you know, there's a huge train going by or the light that we all know takes forever. Maybe do you get out of your car on your side just to take cover or something like that? Is, do you, could that be an appropriate option if it's, if it's obviously safe to get out? Yeah. There's so many different variables that we could, you right. know, if you're sitting in your car and this, that, and the other thing. But right. the bottom line is, is like you said, if you have the option to get out, get out, go, leave, right. you know? Right. Last resort, always. Right, right. Uh, will attorneys accept cold calls if you have an incident or do they require you to have them on a retainer? Cold calls work, but keep in mind, if there's been an incident, there's a good chance you will be in jail. They don't exactly give you the internet in jail to go lot and do lots of research. There's a good chance that if you have not already done your calls and research uh, and made sure that uh, your, your best friend, your loved one, your spouse, whoever that might be, has that list available to them. Because I always suggest to people, don't call me, right? Because there's a good chance you're not going to reach me, for starters. Um, but you're probably going to leave a very incomplete message uh, with staff or something like that, no matter how much we might try to prompt you for something. And okay, we've got a name that's locked up somewhere in the state. We've got 72 counties and probably hundreds of different municipal police departments, uh, you know, detention centers you could be held in. I have no way of finding you. Like, I, I, I can't do anything. Give me someone to work with on the outside. So do your research on who you want to be the person uh, or, or maybe a list of attorneys that you're interested in, and then hand it off to a loved one, uh, you know, a friend, hopefully both, uh, and call, make that person your call. Don't go into a bunch of specifics over the phone because there's a good chance it's all being recorded, and then have that person reach out because that way we can start coordinating things from the outside. Well, we've done a lot of that research already. So for all of you members that are watching here, it's called the critical response team. That's who you want to get a hold of right, right. away. I mean, you've worked with Corey and yep. her team. You know, tell them a little bit about what, you, what you've uh, found as their value as it applies towards membership here. 24-7. If you're a member, you have 24-7 access to live English speakers right here in Wisconsin. It's not, it's not some other country or anything like that. Uh, they're based right here out of this building in beautiful West Bend, Wisconsin. And they've been trained to know how to handle these phone calls, when to shut you down if you're going too far. Uh, and what information do they need at that moment in time. And then they can work with uh, attorneys on the critical response team, attorneys who have given them their cell phones for 24-7, around the clock, 365 access, to get, to get that, that, uh, that beast going here to mount your defense. I've watched them in action, Tom. They're great. They're calm. They know where to go. They'll help you calm down, and they know how to get that process rolling so that whatever time that you're incarcerated, whatever time that you're spending with the police is going to be as little time as possible. They're and, really good. And I, I work with the critical response team uh, on, in, in some respects to help answer their questions and to make sure that they're as informed as possible about the legal system. Again, keeping in mind this is a moving target because the legal system is always changing, sometimes slowly, but it's always changing and it's always different from place to place, so. Good question. Thomas asks, if an armed perpetrator is breaking into my home but not yet inside, may I legally fire at him? 
again, I, I, I don't know the laws in your state, all right? If you were here in Wisconsin, right, because there's two things that, that we're talking about, maybe even three. Number one, what's the generic self-defense laws, right? If I'm in reasonable fear of imminent death or great bodily harm, uh, then I am privileged to use uh, deadly force. And that's a rebuttable privilege, which is to say that the prosecutor can still overcome that, possibly, or poke holes in it. But that's, that's kind of the default, at least here in Wisconsin and most other states are somewhat similar until you get the duties to retreat or soft duties to retreat and things like that. Um, but then, of course, the question is really begging for a Castle Doctrine analysis, right? Castle Doctrine is basically something that says if certain conditions are met, then there's a presumption that, I'm in, that I'm in, I can use deadly force, that I'm in reasonable fear of imminent death or great bodily harm is what we would hear say in Wisconsin. But anytime you hear somebody say that P word, presumption, I want you to think of another word that starts with an R, rebuttable, because that's what follows it. And that means that, yeah, Castle Doctrine creates a presumption that maybe you can use your firearm. But the prosecution, the government, can introduce rebuttable evidence to say why, you know what, that didn't really apply here. So again, Castle Doctrine may apply at different times. So here in Wisconsin, if somebody has broken into or is in the process of breaking into, then okay, it may apply. So, Thomas, to answer directly your question where somebody has not entered your home but then they're in the process of breaking into your home, and again, I don't know what your definition of breaking into because it might be different than mine, uh, but under my definition of breaking into where they're, they're climbing through your window or in the process of you know, cleaning out the glass that they just broke and, or, or busting open your door, um, then yeah, you're going to be probably privileged to use Castle Doctrine. The third thing then is standard ground laws. Um, which, uh, you know, generally speaking, are, are going to be the best pro-victim, the, you, the, the person down the lens, getting the training and the education on how to use your firearm safely to stop the threat. It's the best pro-victim legislation, by and large, that's out there because it creates the most robust barriers, the, the, the best defense barriers and obstacles and barricades for prosecutors to secure that, that conviction. So, bottom line, check your local listings, check the laws, understand that um, you may be using the term breaking into differently than the law does, so you got to figure out how exactly does my state define that. Uh, it's, it's awesome to hear how you just drill down and get to the, uh, <laughs> the finer points of all of these, uh, these situations and things that I would never think about. So I'm learning a lot sitting here, you guys, like almost by osmosis, but oh, boy. <laughs> is that a word? Yes. yes. <laughs> so John asked, what are the legal issues with investigating a trespasser on my property when hand carrying a pistol? For example, I had no time to put on a holster, so I'm carrying it in my hand and somebody's on my property and I decide to go and investigate. Well, kind of similar, John, to what I just talked about with respect to Thomas's question, check your local listings, right? Um, and I'm, I'm gonna go with this at two different ways. So I'm gonna kind of cover a little bit of what we talked about with Thomas, then I'm gonna introduce a whole new variable from what we didn't talk about. So first off, the Thomas stuff. Check your local listings because maybe that's, that's gonna be considered brandishing. Maybe you having a loaded firearm in your hand could be considered possibly use of force. Keep in mind that the bad guy who could be trespassing could say uh, he pointed it at me. And maybe you did point it at him, I don't know. But he could make up and just claim that you did. Well, was the bad guy, uh, was he carrying a baseball bat? Was he coming at you or something like that? Because sometimes just presenting a firearm, a loaded firearm, and sometimes even an unloaded firearm, pointing at someone, that may not be considered an attempted homicide or anything like that, but it could be something called an RES, recklessly endangering safety. Here in Wisconsin, you could be looking up to 25 years in prison for that. So I'm not saying don't arm yourself and take precautions. 
What I am saying is know your laws and understand that if you decide to leave your house to go investigate uh, that, that bustle in the bush or whatever it is that's going on in your backyard, that you are introducing risk into your life. And I'm not saying that's fair for you as the good guy who's trying to protect your property. I'm just saying this is reality, all right? So that's the first thing is, is the laws and some of the variables in play. The second thing is uh, that the laws in the street go down very differently depending upon where you are. What do I mean by that? In urban and, and major metropolitan areas, there's probably going to be a very different attitude about law enforcement, about, um, about firearms. I don't have to tell you this, and hopefully this isn't coming as news to you. Uh, firearms, kind of a political issue these days. And if you don't think that that doesn't bleed into our justice system, well, number one, rewind in this video about 20 minutes to when I was talking about how different judges characterized ammunition, right? Uh, but number two is the fact that, look, at the end of the day, you could get uh, a very different outcome on a case just from law enforcement of this happened in a country setting where there's maybe a very different attitude towards firearms versus maybe more of an urban setting where, again, a very different attitude on firearms. Sometimes, as crazy as, as this might seem, even within the same district attorney's offices, you may have very different attitudes towards cases, firearms, and evidence that could lead to this particular case being charged, but not that particular case. Um, if this sounds alarming to you, good, because this is reality, and this is what myself and our team of attorneys have to deal with day in, day out. There's a lot of discretion baked into the system across many different levels. Police, how, what do the police supervisors think? What's the particular prevailing sentiment among politicians? And what kind of pressure for prosecuting are the public and the newspapers looking for in all this? What is the prosecutor's looking for? Maybe this prosecutor is different than that prosecutor. You don't control which prosecutor you get. You're going to get one of them. Hopefully, you got the good one for you. Uh, it's scary, but that's the truth. And we even talked about judges and about 10 other different things, you know, juries and so forth. So um, there's a lot of discretion. A lot of things can go down differently, even though the law is written the same no matter where you are in your jurisdiction. You know, there's a lot you can do, too, to um, not have to go out and investigate with a firearm. You know, there's other technology that exists, like um, binoculars. You know, can you get a close-up look at them through a set of nice glass? Um, you know, do you have posted, have you posted clearly on your property that, you know, trespassers will be prosecuted? If so, then call the police. Can you shout out there and just say, hey, listen, I see you. Uh, what is it that your intention is on my property, you right. know, and um, again, involve law enforcement before you get into a fight, not after. Right, and motion sensor floodlights and even how you landscape your property can make differences. So, and look, none of us here is saying that this is fair to you as the victim, as the homeowner, that you've got to think about all these things. When you're dealing with somebody who's fundamentally sh has no right to be there, but these, these questions go above our pay grade. Um, so it just is what it is. We have a couple more uh, time for a couple more questions sure. here. So, uh, do you have a duty to tell the officer if you are carrying during a traffic stop? Definite, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so it depends because in certain states you do, certain states you don't. So Wisconsin, you do not have a duty to tell law enforcement. In other words, if you do not tell law enforcement, they cannot prosecute you the crime or anything like that. Independent, some sort of factor I'm unaware of. Um, so you know you're making threats or you know, something like that. But normal traffic stop, everything's hunky dory. You do not. Certain other states, like Missouri, comes to mind where you do have a duty, if you have any firearms in your car, to notify law enforcement. And I think it's punishable by some sort of crime, a misdemeanor offhand. I, 
I apologize to those of you in Missouri, but again, check out uscca.com slash laws, L-A-W-S, to find out whether or not you have a duty to report uh, firearms in, in cars to law enforcement. Um, because you can get into trouble if you don't. Well, they get a lot of information on their onboard computers. Do they, do they have that information available to them if they run your license plate? Uh, well, they don't have to have that information available to them if you just have a Glock sticker on the back of your truck or your car or anything like that. I mean, keep in mind, if you choose to put bumper stickers on your car, you are messaging to law enforcement, and for that matter, everyone else who bothers to read and if assuming they understand what a Glock sticker looks like or a SIG or whatever it is, um, that maybe this person does have a firearm in your car. And those brandings can mean things. Obviously, if you have the I don't call 911 sticker on the back of your car, that's going to be giving a certain type of messaging to law enforcement whoever else looks at it. So, and I'm not necessarily saying that you shouldn't put stickers on your car. I'm just saying be mindful of the messaging that, that you're putting out there. That's, that's all I'm saying by it. Okay. So the last question for today is from Darwin. And yes, uh, I have heard that when questioned by police about an incident, that in addition to raising your right to remain silent and raising your right to an attorney, that we should also tell the police that we do not give them permission to search yourself or your property. Is this advisable? Generally speaking, is raising your rights advisable? The best generic answer I can give you, and I say generic because Darwin, I don't know the exact facts, facts and circumstances in your case. But generally speaking, yes, raising your rights is, make, is, is advisable. And keep in mind, and it seems like you're already familiar with this, at least at an intuitive, if not an explicit level, but raising your right to silence is very different than raising your right to an attorney. And by the way, raising your right to an attorney is much better than raising your right to silence. If you raise your right to silence, the police can effectively still engage with you, they can still harass you, they can still badger you, they can still keep playing those games. If you raise your right to an attorney, theoretically, they're supposed to disengage and kind of back off and make whatever decisions they're going to be making. Um, and while I'm on this point, keep in mind that as well, I, Steve, the critical response team, your local attorney, whatever it might be, no one can raise these rights for you. You down the lens have to raise these rights for yourself. I can't be pounding on the sheriff's department front door saying my client raises his rights. They're going to laugh. They, they don't care. Okay. Um, You've got to be the one to communicate that. You've got to be the one to make your own stand on that front. But as, for, as far as not giving them permission to search maybe your cell phone, your wallet, uh, your backpack, your car, whatever it is, um, keep in mind a couple quick points. Number one, if law enforcement is making a search that you believe is illegal, if you resist that search, they will probably be able to lawfully prosecute you for resisting the possibly illegal search, even if it does turn out to be illegal. So I always tell clients, Look, if you're going to raise your rights, raise your rights. Make it clear that you're not consenting to any particular search of your person, your property, whatever it might be. But if you resist those searches, even if they turn out to be illegal, you can be lawfully prosecuted and go to jail. So if the police are going to search, unfortunately, even if it's illegal, they're going to search. I'm sorry. It is what it is. Uh, but don't, don't resist things and, and stack up the issues. That's, that's going to be there. But yeah, generally speaking, it's advisable. All right, Tom. Thanks for helping us out here today with all that awesome advice, right? You know, that is the last question we have. It's because it's all the time that we have. Um, but we do have one more thing to ask. What can our USCC members do to help you out, Tom? So, guys, uh, uh, something that really helps me be here and break away from my office with all my fantastic attorneys there uh, and our team is if you could just take a few moments. There's a button that should be on your screen that says review Tom Grieve, review me, or something like that. 
If you can click that, it's going to bring you to a Google uh, page. It's totally free, just takes you a couple moments, and it's going to ask you to rate us in a five star, one to five stars, one being bad, five being good. Keep in mind, it's the internet. Four out of five is basically a failing grade as far as the internet and Google is concerned. So if you feel like you've gotten something out of this, you've gotten some decent content, some information that you're going to be able to put in your pocket and back of your brain and take forward, I would ask if you can just take that quick moment, takes 20 seconds, leave that review. I do personally, my, me, myself, not some sort of marketing, whatever, I go through and read and respond every single comment. Uh, we do have, if you've done this before, this is a different location uh, than what we've, what we've done previously. So even if you've done this before, I would ask that you take a moment and see if you can possibly do it again. It's fantastic for us. It really helps us out, allows me to be here. If you also Google grievelaw.com, or pardon, not grievelaw.com, that's the website. If you just Google Grieve Law, and you can just click write a review, we've got all sorts of locations around Wisconsin. Guys, it really, really, really means something to us, and it really, from, from bottom of my heart and the rest of our team back at the office, uh, thank you in advance if you can take that moment. Yeah, that's awesome. We appreciate you, Tom. Thank I'll you, even do a review. I'll even do a review for you. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> so there's a button down below, everybody, okay, to give the USCCA a review. Okay, we really appreciate this as well. And if you had any questions that we didn't get to today, I'd like you to contact our member services team. They're here, they're here 24-7. And the number for that is 800-674-9779. I'll repeat that one more time. So to contact member services, 800-674-9779. Or, okay, I want you to talk, I want you to consider that Tom, myself, and Mike, one of our trainers, will be going live on Facebook here and YouTube at 2.45 p.m. Central today. So join us this afternoon. We'd love to see you. See you guys. Bye.